0: Sometime in the 1860s, by the Little Powder River, in what is today the state of Wyoming or Montana, Black Elk was born. He was a member of the Oglala Lakota Native American tribe, and he would go on to become one of the best-known figures in Native American history, a celebrated holy man, and the co-author of the 1932 book, Black Elk Speaks. But long before any of that, when he was still a child, Black Elk had a powerful vision— So when he's a young boy, he's playing
1: outside of his lodge, and he sees, as he says, two men slanting down from the clouds like arrows, traveling down to see him. And he saw these men a number of times sort of coming, and then um, at one point, the vision actually commenced. And as oftentimes happens in these visions, he sort of falls over as if dead and lays there for several days, and his family thinks that he's not going to survive, and they're calling medicine people to come and resuscitate him to bring him back while he is off in the world of the vision. My name is Phil Deloria. I'm a professor in the history department and the chair of the committee on degrees in history and literature and I teach courses in Native American history and Native American studies.
0: Professor Philip Deloria teaches Black Elk Speaks in his classes at Harvard. But his relationship with the work goes back much farther. This book is a family book in a way. Black Elk Speaks was published in 1932 but remained in relative obscurity until the late 1960s. In 1972, my father wrote a new
1: introduction to this book, which is sort of famous among the people who study this book. He said, this is a Bible
0: of all native tribes. Professor Deloriat first read the book as an adolescent, and he was struck by the language and the imagery. So the book was dictated
1: by Black Elk, who was an Oglala holy man, to John Neihart, who was a lyric poet, the poet laureate of Nebraska, actually. And so some of the language is Neihart's language, translational language of Black Elk. And sometimes it can be, you know, a little overly literary, perhaps. But there's a kind of directness to it and a kind of a um, simplicity uh, to it and a power in the story that really caught me as a young person. Here's
0: Professor Deloria reading a bit of the text.
1: My friend, I'm going to tell you the story of my life as you wish. And if it were only the story of my life, I think I would not tell it. For what is one man that he should make much of his winters, even when they bend him like a heavy snow? So many other men have lived and shall live that story to be grass upon the hills. It is the story of all life that is holy and is good to tell. And of us two-legged sharing it, with the four-leggeds and the wings of the air, and all green things.
0: For these are children of one mother, and their father is one spirit. He found the book again when he was in college, in a Native American religions class. And
1: I focused in a lot more on the question of who wrote the book. Did John Neihart really sort of take over Black Elk and kind of craft his own book? There's passages in here which Black Elk never said but Neihardt said. And so this was a kind of intellectual problem or puzzle that I found kind of interesting. Then I read it as a teacher. I've taught it several times and found myself engaged with other kinds of questions about its spiritual meaning and its significance for Native people and for non-Native people. And then I found myself coming full circle and writing a new introduction for the latest edition a couple years ago. So it's a book that's sort of haunted me for a really long time and has gone through different sorts of manifestations, right, in my different readings. And what has been really interesting, I think, about the book is the ways that its resurgence in the late 60s and 70s has really made it. This is the best-selling book of all books authored by a Native person, and probably all books about Native people. So for some people, it may not be a sort of best-selling popular book, but in fact, it is a best-selling popular book. It is the single book that has determined the ways that many, many people think about,
0: about Native folks. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Harvard professor Philip Deloria to talk about Black Elk Speaks. Black Elk Speaks tells stories from Black Elk's life. One early chapter tells the story of the vision. Remember, when the vision starts, Black Elk sees two men slanting down from the clouds like arrows. So he's carried by the two men, the slanting arrow men, up
1: into the clouds where he sees the six grandfathers, and he himself is the sixth grandfather, the representations of the four directions, the earth and the sky, these sort of power beings. And each one gives him certain kinds of gifts or ways of thinking about power. There's a sacred herb. There's a bow. There's a dish of water. There's all these possibilities. So he's given these different powers, and then still in his vision— he's led to enact some of these kinds of powers as well. So there's a drought on the Missouri River and he will ride down at the head of this legion of horses and Kill the Drought, which is figured as a kind of a blue man that's in the river. The imagery of this is fantastic and amazing. So he'll talk about ranks of horses of different colors. And there'll be 12 bay horses over here and 12 white horses over here and 12 black horses over here and 12 roan horses here. And they will line up in sort of ranks and files. And he will be riding his own horse at the head of them. And they're, you know, kind of cresting across the sky. they are thunder beings. The Lakota people, the power of the West and the thunders is really, really important and dangerous. Um, So he's harnessing the power of the thunder beings. He's calling on all these different powers um, for healing, uh, for taking care of his people. And then eventually he comes back out of the vision and comes back to life. And he's weak and he's changed. He's never the same person again. His friends and his peers say, well, you know, he's become a kind of a strange and quiet person now he's he's not the same a medicine person comes into the lodge and says your son is sitting in a sacred manner like something has happened to him he's changed so he's from a very early age black elk is seen by his family to have this kind of specialness about him. And the question is then, at what point does he exercise his powers and how does he exercise his powers? And this is, of course, at the very moment when sort of American military domination is coming to the Northern Great Plains. And so the question is, does he have this kind of life-destroying power, you know, through these sacred herbs and these, these kinds of things? And will he use it? And if he does, you know, what will happen? And in the end... As he says, you know, the vision of a man with a power too weak to use it, he does not use this thing called the soldier herb. That's the name that that he gives to it. He does not use that power. And so he watches the tree, the sacred tree of the Lakota people sort of shrivel, you know, and in Neihart's words, shrivel and die. Whenever you read in this book about, you know, a beautiful dream died in the bloody snow of wounded knee, that will be John Neihart talking and not black elk talking, right? So Neihart puts a kind of vanishing Indian sort of gloss on this that I don't think Black Elk himself actually believed. So it's a bit the story of that vision and how his life was lived in relation to it. But he also, you know, he traveled with Buffalo Bill's Wild West show to Europe. He was abandoned there for a year and, you know, lived in Europe for a year. Um, When Buffalo Bill came back the following year for a tour, he found Black Elk again Put him on a ship and sent him back to Pine Ridge Reservation. He was uh, present at the Wounded Knee massacre, so he was there at the sort of climactic, kind of last bit of violence on the on the Great Plains. And then, untold in the story, he uh, became a Catholic catechist. And so he worked for the Catholic Church. Um, This person who had this incredibly powerful traditional medicine dream or this vision um, became a really highly respected church worker. Many people have found that contradictory. Um, And it's interesting that John Neihart chose to leave that bit out of the story. But Neihart came to uh, South Dakota in the late 1920s, early 1930s, looking for material for this epic ballad that he was writing, thousands and thousands of lines of verse that basically account for a kind of narrative of the American West in the early to mid-19th, early to end of 19th century, really, from the fur trade up through the Wounded Knee Massacre. And he met Black Elk at that time. And Black Elk said, hmm... This is the person to whom I want to tell my story. And when I tell the story of this vision, I will be giving away the power of that vision. But I'm an old man, and it's time for me to do that now. So Neihart came back the following year with his daughters. And there was a complicated process of translation where Black Elk would speak in Lakota to his son, Ben Black Elk, who would then translate to English. One of his daughters would write it down in stenographic notation. They would come back and then read, sort of translate the stenographic notation into transcripts, at which point then Neihart reworked the transcripts to create the text that was Black Elk Speaks. So it's a really interesting kind of piece of writing in the sense that it's co-authored Neihardt and Black Elk felt like they had a kind of spiritual, by all accounts, they really truly felt like they had a kind of spiritual affinity for one another. Black Elk recognized Neihardt as the person. Neihardt always felt he had this kind of kinship with Black Elk, that they had a kind of telepathic almost kind of uh, relationship to one another. And then Neihardt published the book and it almost immediately became obscure and no one really paid very much attention to it.
0: What does it mean in the Lakota culture to be a holy man? And especially interesting is this. Sounds like a, a complicated expectation that he might, Jesus-like, deliver them from domination, um, and and be a warrior. But then ends up not applying that power, and that 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 power dynamic is fascinating.
1: Yeah, it's a super complicated thing to be a holy man, and and not many people seek it and or want it. You might go on a vision to have certain kinds of power, as a warrior, for example. Um, but the kind of power that Black Elk had, you know, is a power that just um, requires nothing but obligation for your entire life. So um, there's there's many accounts of uh, Lakota people sort of seeing visions of thunder and kind of not wanting it, you know, um, to have a vision of thunder was to become, uh, oftentimes it was become what they called a heyoka, a kind of a sacred clown who did everything backwards. Showed people how to live by showing them how not to live. So that's an obligation that you would bear for your whole life. There's other kinds of holy, weepy men who could find lost objects, cures and healers, right? Bear medicine men who had the power to heal, to cure. For all those folks, what comes with a sacred vision like that is an obligation to take care of other people, oftentimes at the expense of your own self and your own life. So it's not about status. It's about caretaking, you know, uh, other people, and obligation and responsibility and uh, taking on a really important kind of social, social role. So for Black Oak, what ends up happening for him and for many other people is when you have this vision, It's existing in the realm of the spirit, but you need to take it and make it material in the realm of the earth and of the people. So for example, one of the things that he does is he has this horse dance where he says, in the vision, there are all these horses you know, milling around and the horses were a sort of location of power for him. So he needs to take those horses and actually dance that part of the vision with all the people. And that takes his own individual vision and makes it collective, right? It takes the power of that and brings it to the people. And so the 12 ranks of white horses and black horses, those things are replicated on earth as he does the horse dance, for example, which is a, a
0: wonderful, beautiful chapter in the book. What does this book reveal about broader Native American culture? It's kind of a big question. What, what does it tell us about a, a whole people? It's actually not a crazy question. Okay, okay, I mean, so. you know,
1: because in a lot of ways, um, this is a very specific kind of tradition, a La Lakota tradition, a Northern Great Plains tradition. It can't be extrapolated out beyond that, right? It is what it is. It occupies its own kind of time and space. At the same time... Um, You know, the fact that it became this kind of intertribal bestseller, that it was, you know, a Bible of all tribes, this sort of sense— It did represent this sort of moment from the late 60s on when um, certain things which came out of northern Great Plains culture actually spread to other kinds of places. For example, Native people in California oftentimes have sort of rites of passage, kind of rituals of manhood and womanhood that might take a month to exercise. Whereas the vision quest in this case might take four or five days well, all of a sudden, maybe that black elk thing looks kind of appealing to people in California. And all of a sudden you see kind of blurrings and blendings and transformations of other indigenous traditions in relation to this book, you know? So this becomes interesting. The fact that sweat lodges have sort of been, been present in many, many native traditions, but sort of have spread in the traditional form that you find in this book across many places in Native America, I think is interesting, you know, and telling. So, it's for me it's evidence of the fact that that native people are you know not stuck in time or not static people who never change or not bound by you know traditions which are you know sort of um unchanging but are in fact people like all other people who adapt and change and swap across cultures even as they maintain certain kinds of core autochthonous kinds of things that are that are native so as this kind of intertribal text, I think it does in some ways kind of speak to the broader world of Native America. And and the things that you would extract out of that are sort of a philosophy about how humans live in relation to the world, how humans r- live in relation to one another, these kinds of things, which, you know, a lot of Native people will say, you know, can have a certain quality of generalization,
0: right? Let's Let's now talk about the story of its emergence from obscurity. It wasn't very widely read at the time, like most works of poetry and Nebraskan poets, I imagine. But how did it get rediscovered and take on this larger life and start to have wider influence, maybe both among other tribes um, as well as uh, contemporary European-American life? You know, I think a lot of its resurgence had to do with kind of the ways
1: in which the counterculture moments of the 1960s really went looking for native texts and looking for different kinds of accounts. Um, A lot of counterculturalists felt like Indian people and Indian, you know, histories and traditions had something to teach them. And so the book reemerges kind of in that context. And then, you know, it gets republished in 1972. And... It's funny, when you go to look at the cover of the 1972 version, it's completely couched in this 1960s language, you know. It's like, more mind-blowing than a psychedelic acid trip. You know, it's, that's the kind of language, you know. And in some ways, there's a market kind of um, influence that happens here that's aiming at young counterculturalist people who are looking for alternative sort of inspirations.
0: I mean, I've seen pictures of Native American dress on white Attendees at Woodstock, right? Yeah, this was absolutely a whole thing, right? You know, there's a whole thing called the Grateful Dead Indians.
1: There was a, there was a lot of indigenous imagery and appropriation that went on, you know, in the 1960s in terms of the counterculture. And this is kind of one of these texts that gets caught up, you know, in that. It's also the case that John Neihart himself, um, sort of, he never went away from the public eye. You know, he's a very popular teacher at the University of Missouri. He taught this course called Epic America, which was kind of a great, you know, sort of poetic survey of the U.S. Um, but he goes on the Dick Cavett Show, believe it's the early 70s. And, uh, and people across the country watch him as he talks about Black Elk Speaks, and he talks in poetic terms, and he's quite a character, right? And so there's a kind of counterculture dimension to it. There's a kind of mass media dimension, and then there's a kind of publishing, a republishing kind of dimension, you know, a market dimension, you know, as well. And by the time all is said and done, by the time you hit the early to mid-70s, this book is everywhere, really. It's also the case that there's a, a resurgence of native writing, I mean, it's been interesting to me. 1969, 50 years ago, my my dad's first book, Custer Died for Your Sins, came out and was sort of the first Native American political bestseller of that period. At the same time, Scott Momaday's book, Housemaid of Dawn, won the Peel of Surprise for Literature. And so you have got two different models of Native American writing, kind of the political polemic and the modernist, you know, sort of native literary voice, um, both of which would be channeled throughout the, you know, the 70s into the 80s and 90s. Um, And then you have Black Elk, you know. So it sits as part of this moment of emergence of new native literary voices. And to that, I would add one non-native literary voice, which was Dee Brown's book, Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, which was sort of a, a big bestseller in the early 1970s. So there's this moment where there's an explosion in a way
0: of native writing, and Black Elk Speaks gets caught up um, and is part of that, you know, as well. What do we know about its reception history among native peoples? You know, I think it it, it languished not only among white readers but
1: but native readers for a, a pretty significant period of time after the the 1930s. Um, some part of the native sort of re adoption of this book has to do with sort of watching white counterculturalists, you know, kind of adopt it. But, you know, another part has to do with certain kinds of tribal continuities. So, first of all, Neihardt writes a whole other book uh, called When the Tree Flowers, which is based on his interviews with Black Elk. A young anthropologist named Joseph Epps Brown is inspired by Black Elk Speaks, goes out, and he also meets with Black Elk and publishes a little book called The Sacred Pipe, where Black Elk is sort of laying out the seven ceremonies of Lakota people. So there is certain kinds of continuities there, and there are ways in which anthropology becomes part of a kind of living tradition around this particular kind of book. I would also say it's really important to sort of recognize the ways that the US government had spent a great deal of time from the mid 19th century on trying to stamp out the practice of native religion. By the time you're in the late 19th century, you've got the civilization regulations, which basically prohibit the free exercise and expression of native religions. So the Sundance, which Black Elk also sort of talks about, was prohibited for Lakota people. Of course, they kept doing it, these sort of, you know, backwoods kind of places. Um, but the ability to sort of return to traditional re- religions really takes off in the 60s as well. And so I think that's a really important context for thinking about this. One of the reasons it's interesting and important that he's a Catholic catechist, or that I would point to my own family, my grandfather and great-grandfather, both being native clergy, Episcopal ministers, is that these folks use the church as a kind of hiding place, a refuge place for different kinds of traditional Lakota religious practices. So if you went to the Episcopal church convocation in, say, 1920, you know, what you'd find is Uh, kind of an arbor that looks a lot like the traditional Sundance arbor, and you'd find men's societies meeting over on the side, you know, the Society of St. Andrew, which looked a lot like the old men's warrior societies, and you'd find the women's quilting group over here, which looked like the old women's traditional societies, and you'd find the kind of coming together and meeting and gathering, feasting, praying, ah, you know, these church gatherings looked a lot like traditional Sundances except without some of the ceremonial stuff that went with you know, the Sundance. So the church was this sort of place for a number of years where Native people found refuge. But by the time you hit the 60s, you had really... I think, you know, resistant Native people saying, enough of this. We actually want to reconstitute the original ceremonies. I talked at one point to a guy named Albert Whitehat, who was part of the sort of return of some of these ceremonies, and he said, well, we went back to old ethnographies to try to find old Sundance songs, and we had maybe two or three of them, and we tried to reconstitute the Sundance, and we sang these two or three songs over and over and over again. Well, the old people who were Christians in the church kind of sat there watching us. And after a couple of days, they sort of came up to us. And all of a sudden, we had 15 Sundance songs because these people had known those Sundance songs and had kind of preserved them and kept them. So if you think about that resurgence of Native religion and religious practice that happens, and then a book like this, which is so powerful, coming in the middle of that, you can see how everybody wanted to read that and sort of think about it, you know, in relation to new you know, resurgent cultural religious practices.
0: Okay, so this to me sounds like the core of its impact is that both among Native Americans and among countercultural whites who were interested in rejecting maybe their Christian heritage or looking for more sustainable, non-imperial forms of spirituality, this book was a guide to both of those. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah, I think that I think that is fair to say, and I would say even a wider audience than that. You know, um, this was a book that was picked up by book groups and reading groups, and so you know, um, I don't want to make it sound like the only white audience for this was sort of like countercultural hippies because it wasn't. You know, it was a much more widely uh, read book, especially in that period. You know, late '60s through the through the '70s, and then of course it. It went through a number of other editions. Um, anthropologist named Ray DeMalle published a book called The Sixth Grandfather, which was the original transcripts of John Neihart. So it entered into the scholarly domain. That was one of the first moments where we could see what Neihart had added ways that we, he had, you know, transformed some of Black Elk's words. But we could also see some of the ways that Neihart had really captured Black Elk's original sentiments and translated them in a way that I think both of these men would have really recognized and appreciated and honored. So there was a, a new kind of audience, I would say, around people who were interested in literature and literary production, um, not, not totally an academic audience, but one that was sort of tilting in that direction, you know, as well. So it's a book that has had multiple kind of possibilities for transforming people, you know, in different ways, native people, non-native people across the board.
0: I saw that Carl Jung was interested in this book. Why do you think he was drawn to this? What impact did that have? Mm -hmm. So Jung, you know, who was a sort of Freudian protege
1: who broke with Freud and who then kind of theorized collective conscious or collective unconscious – kinds of things, um, archetypes that might float around. He, He sort of started edging into structuralism in a certain kind of way, right? That like there are certain things that might be shared among all human beings. He was part of that kind of move, of sort of comparative ethnology or ethnography, sort of just grabbing at random from world traditions and saying, look how that lines up with this. Do you see that? Do you get it? You know, at the same time, you know, he was also mystical himself, right? I mean, For anyone who's looked at Carl Jung's red book, for example, his kind of dream ledger, um, who's read Memories, Dreams, Reflections, his own kind of autobiography, he was a mystical person. Um, And so Jung has a kind of an experience, um, I believe in the 1930s, where he goes to Taos Pueblo and he says, oh my gosh, these people... These native people, everything I've been trying to say is contained here in this place. And he has a similar kind of response to Black Elk Speaks, right? That like, wow, this really captures, you know, everything. So it's a mystery, right? What was it that Jung was talking about in terms of Black Elk, right? Because Jung has a universalist kind of thing. Well, Black Elk sort of does too. I mean, Black Elk, there's a moment in the book where he says, I was taken to Harney Peak. He says, Harney Peak is the center of the Lakota world. But then he says, you know, in his vision, he's taken to the center of the world and he looks out and he can see the sacred hoops of all these different people across the entire world, across the entire universe. Well, this is the kind of stuff that Jung really, really liked and appreciated. So I think there's a sense about the sort of spiritual power of it, of a certain kind of universalist, holistic oneness that was really evocative for Jung. And, of course, Jung had a whole series of readers of his own, right? And by the time Black speaks, Jung has sort of gone a little bit off the deep end, if you don't mind my saying so, right? He writes his book on UFOs as a kind of cosmic manifestation. And, and of course, you know, um, Jung sort of, uh, you know... (sighs) sympathies and quasi-sympathies with Nazi Germany are now part of the discussion in that period, you know, as well. So I wouldn't want to overstate sort of Jung's impact and the impact of his readership. But in fact, there's been a long continuous strand of Jungian thought that really took off in the 80s. I would say Black Elk Speaks acquired a new Jungian audience of new agers in the 80s and 90s that came directly from people who were doing personality tests and things like that out of the Jungian tradition.
0: Well, and I can imagine partly what drew someone like Jung and, and maybe many of the countercultural readers is the sense that it was a lost civilization that was only now accessible through a kind of quasi-sacred text. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, what, what's the experience of reading this book like, maybe as a white person, to encounter someone's sacred vision from a different kind of community? When you teach this to your students, what are some common responses?
1: I tell my students, you have to read the Great Vision, the Sacred Vision chapter really slowly, and you have to let your imagination really take hold. If you're zooming through it and going, oh, look, there's 12 horses here, and there's this and that, and there's this cloud people and stuff, like you're not going to get it. But if you read it slowly and attentively with a full imagination, it is a kind of amazing world in which you really, I would say, the average reader has had no access or exposure to You know, and it can be, I mean, not to sort of go back to the 1972 version, it can be kind of mind-blowing, right, in a certain way. It puts you in a different kind of sensibility. You realize that cultures are really different, and they're not just the same thing of people who sort of, like, who dress a little funny and are, you know, they're not like that. I mean, I I sometimes have my students read, in tandem with this, other sorts of accounts. Um, There's this doctor, James Walker, who records a whole series of things on the Pine Ridge Reservation, So there's snippets, you know, of his uh, recordings, which put you in that space, right? So imagine this, right? Oh, two men were out hunting and they killed a bison. And they looked inside the stomach and there was an old woman there. Long pause, beat, stop, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) You know, and it's not just like, oh, what a cute little folktale that is. It's like, no, 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 this was their world. They killed a bison and there was an old woman in the stomach. Like, it's a real thing. Wrap your head around that, gentle reader, you know. And Black Elk Speaks can have some kind of elements of that as well. So there's an inaccessibility to it. Like, I'll never get access to that vision, right? This definitely caused white counterculturalists to go out and try to have visions. There's no doubt about it, you know, like, oh, I read that thing. I want to go try this. And they would go and kind of try, not understanding that the vision is a collective thing. It's not an individual thing. Traditionally, the vision you would go up, you would fast, you would pray, uh, you know, you might drink a little bit of water, and you might be up there for four days. So there's there's a kind of a sense of like, what's happening here, right? And you get sort of the logical positivist who says, well, if you don't eat or drink for four days, you know, and you don't sleep, you know, you're going to start seeing things, right? I mean, there is some element of truth to that, and that is part of the intention behind a vision quest, but. That is like only the surface veneer of the truth of it, right? For Black Elk and for other folks, the truth of it is, is that you put yourself in that position, a position of supplication, of humility, in order to actually get the spirits to have mercy on you and to grant you certain kinds of powers or let you see certain kinds of things. And then when you have the vision, when the vision is complete, you come down from the hill where you're... Your vision questing, and you immediately go into the sweat lodge with the old men, and you say, "This is what I saw," and they collectively interpret it for you, and you take it out into the community, and you perform the vision. So it's a communal thing, you know. I think what a lot of white counterculturalists thought about was like, "No, this is a me thing," right? It was a little bit of a narcissistic kind of turn on the vision, and they, you know, would sort of devise their own kinds of um, vision quest things where they'd go out and they, you know sit there for a couple of days and hope that they saw something and, and, you know, fine, you know, no harm, no foul. Right. Because I just don't, I don't sense my own belief is that the efficacy of that is not the same thing as the
0: efficacy of it. When someone like black elk, you know, was doing it. Right. Why should people today pick up this book and read it? Yeah. Well, let me say a couple things about that. I think first
1: of all, um, There is—the book is so finely crafted that it is an experience of literary pleasure, right? And I think that's a good reason to read a book, and it's the gateway, perhaps, into this. It's also an experience of certain kinds of social otherness, And John Neihart actually theorized this term of otherness, which we attach to sort of more contemporary literary theory. He was talking about otherness in the 1930s and the experience of engaging something wholly other, as Rudolf Otto, the German theologian, might have talked about. So Neihart was attuned to that. This book gives you a sense of sort of like there are other alternative worlds that are possible and that may be real, right? And that, I think creates in us, as readers, a certain kind of sense of humility about, you know, our confidence in claiming certain kinds of things. And then I would say the third thing is our conversation in the United States today around race and ethnicity and immigration tends to leave Native people out. It's been really a joy and a pleasure and a privilege, I think, to watch as we commemorate 1619 and the sort of origins of American slavery, Um, but there are a whole series of stories about Native people that we might tell at the same time we tell those stories. As I sometimes often perhaps say, Native people make up 1.5% of the American population, and Native people get about 1.5% of people's collective attention, usually episodically, usually around issues of you know cultural appropriation, mascots and things like that. People don't actually understand very much about Native America. This is the kind of book that can be a little bit of a gateway into that thinking a bit more about things that lead you to law and politics and sovereignty, things which are really important as we think about native people. This is a book that doesn't really address those questions, but gives you some of the tools to start thinking about the histories that lead you there. So I think for all those reasons, it's a fantastic read. It takes you to places that you would not ordinarily go. And it actually has some social relevance to the contemporary moment.
0: Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Du, and our intern is Liza French. Our branding is by Dan Pecci, our theme song is by Ian Koss, and you also heard music in this episode from Blue Dot Sessions. We're a member of LitHub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Lyceum is a curated podcast app with a hand-picked catalog of educational shows. Join our show's discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what others are saying. You can download the app in the App Store or in Google Play. It's L-Y-C-E-U-M. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Next week on Writ Large, I sit down with Harvard professor Elisa New to discuss Walt Whitman's Leaves of Grass. In this collected work of poetry, first published in the years before the Civil War, Whitman offered a new vision of American poetry and American identity. You can hear that episode right now in the Lyceum app. Whitman says to artists, go big, <laughs> go big, believe that art is transformative. Believe in a cultural vanguard. Art is required for our striving toward a a more perfect union.